I was sitting there for a minute deciding if I wanted to preach today because of the subject matter, but uh, before we get into it, Donaldo, I'm going to put you on the spot here and go ahead and share with me what you shared with me, uh, or share with the congregation what you shared with me before uh, got started singing, if you don't mind. Okay. So I can hear you. <laughs> yeah, please. You can stay right there, just so I can hear you. Yeah. This is Donaldo. Ex-professional boxer, if you ever think of getting squirrely with him. Or me, because he said he'd protect me if I need be. Starting tomorrow morning, I'm assuming. Okay. Great. Yeah. It's cold. Justin, I think. Yeah, a group of us that were there after a Wednesday morning study, wasn't it? Is that right? Was it a Wednesday morning study? That's right. Trees. Yeah, you're part of that. Um, all right, well, we're going to preach on a subject here this morning, but I want to uh, tell you before we do, um, my wife and I are very open with our kids about things, uh, about life. And uh, the subject matter uh, that we're going to be talking about, believe it or not, if you have kids that go to school, they hear about stuff way, way, way more intense than the subject. Um, however, some people have different feelings on what they should hear from the pulpit, so I'm giving a little bit of disclaimer. Um, I, I would consider this kid-friendly, but not everybody would. Uh, it is in the Word. It's in the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus talks about it. Um, it's about this concept of lust and adultery. Um, so I just want to let you know I will not be offended if at some point you grab your kids and walk out and go over to the... the uh, where the some of the children are. Some of us have kept our children in here and chosen to do that. I just want to let you know that um, it's definitely not R-rated because I don't think that's appropriate from the pulpit, but it's also, uh, we're not going to be talking about uh, lollipops and dandelions. We will talk about dandelions for just a second uh, because it's the science fact of the day, but the sermon itself is not about dandelions. Uh, my wife told me on the way uh, to church today that you know, dandelions and dandelion root tea and dandelions that you can cut, you can put in your salad, which she does occasionally. Um, it's God's pharmacy for helping with detoxification. And in the springtime in the northern hemisphere, we this is when our bodies tend to detoxify. And this is when our bodies, and I, if I'm saying this wrong, just to, Brenda, don't tell anybody. Um, so our bodies detoxify uh, in the springtime. And so God's pharmacy has dandelions, which is the most prolific, prolific, is it a weed? It's a weed, isn't it? What is it? Herb, thanks mom, she would know, she's a green thumb, so it's the most prolific herb in, uh, in the spring. So when you look, and after she was telling me this, we were driving along and we're seeing all these lawns with dandelions popping up, and then you have the uh, government-owned property 
like the parks that don't have a single yellow flower anywhere because they spray them with the uh, Roundup and, and all that stuff. You know, you know what's on the Roundup bottle? Titus? Dandelion. So God's pharmacy is dandelions are good for us. It actually helps our body detoxify in the springtime, but we just kill them all So, as our society. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. Uh, if you want to know more about it, talk to Brenda or my mom. They, they read up and they love all that stuff. Uh, and I do too, a, a lot. Uh, so we're going to be doing this sermon today, and it's uh, in following up. We're going through Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Steve dealt with the teaching of anger. And the week before, uh, two weeks before, he talked about Christ coming to fulfill the law. And then before that, I preached on the salt and the light. And then before that, uh, several of us, uh, Steve and myself and Justin, preached on the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, 1 through 10. So we're looking at, uh, we're continuing on, and I don't believe that it is uh, my job to ever skip over a subject that gets brought uh, by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to talk about and we're going to just jump right into it, but I half-heartedly joked with Steve uh, earlier this week that I drew the short straw and got to preach on an awkward subject, lust, adultery, immor uh, sexual immorality, and forn uh, fornication. Uh, so I'm going to jump into it because I don't know any other way. Uh, I'm just, sometimes my wife said, I can't believe you said that out loud. I said, well, I did, and I can't take it back, so we're just going to keep moving on. Um, I, I would like to share again that this particular subject lust, um, based on some recent studies that I've done, is, is a very, uh, very common sin, if you will, in our culture. Um, and unfortunately, it's also a very common sin in the church. And my, my hope is that this isn't something that our church body struggles with, um, that we're going to be more of the light and the salt that can encourage people who are stuck in this. But if it is, I hope that I hope it hits you right smack dab in the forehead. I hope it does. Matthew 5, 27 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. You know, I looked up, I said, What is adultery? Matthew 5, 27, what is adultery? And I looked up the Greek, or the, the, the first time it was used in Exodus 20, and it's the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word, uh, it means to commit adultery, but the definition in the Hebrew, at the end of the definition, it says, woman breaking wedlock. I'm like, oh, those women. Woman breaking wedlock is the definition of adultery. I thought, this just doesn't seem right. Men have to have some accountability as well, and so... I flipped over to Exodus chapter, I'm sorry, uh, Leviticus chapter 20. And in Leviticus chapter 20, it says this, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely put to death. Okay, so the definition does say a woman out of wedlock, woman breaking wedlock, but the Levitical law talks that it is the man that is also punishable. So men and women, you're both on the hook at this point. It's not just women. It's men and women are both on the hook for this concept of adultery. So adultery would be breaking wedlock, um, uh, marital relations, sex outside the marriage, if you're married. And it was initially uh, introduced into the law in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. So if you go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, 
Moses is giving uh, the law to the Israelites, and he he does the the Big Ten that are up on the you know the up on the school board in in some places, and it's up at the courthouse and other places. But the seventh law, which was given, uh, the seventh commandment, which was given to the Israelites in in Exodus twenty fourteen, says, "You shall not commit adultery." Now the question initially comes into my head is adultery the same as fornication? Now remember. Got to keep going back to this because I won't, don't want you to think I'm getting off on too many tangents. You have heard that it was said, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So is adultery and fornication the same? No. Fornication and adultery are different. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks, uh, tells the church at Corinth to flee fornication. Fornication would be two people that are not married having a uh, marital relationship. That is what fornication would be. Adultery is when married people are having uh, a relationship outside of the bonds of marriage with someone else. Now, what was the penalty for adultery? Well, we just read it, but we're going to read it in another area of Scripture because he says it more than once. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, notice how I'm kind of preaching like matter-of-factly here because I don't know any other way right now other than to just say this is what the Bible says. I, I, can't, I can't sugarcoat it. I can't, you know, I, I just have to say this is what it says. Do with business with it in your heart as you need to or as you should. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23 says this. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and he lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the eagle, uh, evil from your midst. So she had been betrothed, and when you were betrothed, you were considered married. It was like a fiancé. You were considered married. If another man came to her, he had committed adultery with her. Therefore, the punishment was stoning to death. It also says that in Exodus um, uh, not 2014, but uh, Leviticus 20, uh, verse 10, which we read a minute ago. So that would be the penalty for adultery. Death, stoning to death. In some cultures that I've recently read about, the penalty for adultery was drowning. If you got caught committing adultery, they would drown you, and that would be your death sentence. Um, in certain states, I think it's 16 states in the continental U.S., there are still penalties for adultery. Some are $500 fine, some up to a year in prison. If you look at some of the laws that are in mainly the southern states, they're a little bit more uh, strict about these things, but there are, there, are, there are rules, there are laws against adultery. Now, some of the examples that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament I found are interesting. So we all know of the story of David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, David is the king of Israel, and he's up on this roof, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He's up on this roof, and he sees Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife, sunbathing, and he goes, ooh, she's very beautiful. I think I'm going to take her as my own. And so he, he takes her, and, and, and they, uh, they, 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 have, they commit adultery together, and she becomes pregnant, and then he tries to get Uriah, uh, you know, to come off the war lines and come be with her, and he won't because he's a very righteous man, and, and so he has Uriah killed in battle because he puts him at the front lines. 
But here's what's interesting. Here's my one little rabbit trail and side note, a couple of them. If the law said that if you were convicted of adultery, you were to be stoned to death, why wasn't David stoned to death? Why wasn't Bathsheba stoned to death? They were married. Why didn't they follow the law? See, I believe that in the Old Testament, we have all these little snippets, uh, stories that are shadows of what we see in the New Covenant. And I think I see a picture, one picture I see of grace here, God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve to live anymore, but I'm going to allow you to live. However, someone must pay for your sin. I didn't notice this until today, and I talked to Teresa about it this morning. When I was reading through this story, someone must pay for the sin of David and Bathsheba. And does anybody know what happened to their son that was born? On the seventh day, he died. On the seventh day, God took that child's life as a replacement for David. And then they had another son who was Solomon, who became the wisest, richest man that ever lived in the history of our world. And so, when I look at this shadow story, I see David and Bathsheba, I see a sacrifice, someone that died on behalf of David, which is, for us, take the easy ones, Jesus. It's an example, a shadow story. And then we see another story in John chapter 8, which is, is another story that's always kind of baffled me is, you know, you, you kind of look at how society was at the time in, in, uh, in John chapter 8, in verse 11, it says, they each went to his, or verse 1 rather, they each went to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Excuse me, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, so he's teaching the people, and it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? When I read that, I'm like, well, where's the guy? My dad has told me for 45 years, son, it takes two to tango. So where's the guy in this situation? Where's the man that she was committing adultery with? This, is, uh, this they said to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote it with his finger in the ground, on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go, and from now on, sin no more. Quit doing what you've been doing, that's what Jesus said. I don't condemn you, but quit doing what you've been doing. And I always looked at this story, and I found it kind of a little bit problematic in my own mind that there was no man that was being brought to the front of Jesus to say, you've also sinned. And so we always look at these stories, or I look at these stories, and when there's not information there, I naturally go, well, what about this? And I always thought, maybe Jesus bent down, and he looks at all these guys, these Pharisees and these scribes that are sitting there, and they condemned her, and he goes, oh, there's, there's, uh, there's John. And he writes John in the 
sand and dirt. Oh, hey, Herod, I recognize you. And he writes, Herod, and the oldest to the youngest go, oh, man, we're just as guilty as her. We can't cast the first stone because we're just as guilty. We have also sinned. And I don't, I'm not, that's obviously not book, chapter, verse. I'm just saying I wonder if that's what ended up happening or what could have happened. So when we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, we recognize that the sin of adultery, the, the breaking of the marriage vows, is something that was condemnable by death. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not do this, but I say to you, and there's this mindset that Jesus like elevates the wrongdoing. He makes it more difficult. But he says, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman, just looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now think about that. The, the penalty for adultery is stoning to death. And Jesus just said, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery, therefore guilty of being stoned to death. So I looked up these words, and it says, uh, I say to you that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, this, this, with this word lust, this word lust in the Greek, in 1937 in the Strong's Greek, is epithumio, which means to set your heart upon, to long for, to lust after, to desire, to covet. So when you, and he's talking to men here, when you look at a woman with the intent, with the desire, with this covetous mindset, you are committing adultery, is what Jesus says. I can't see that any other way. And talk about this, this idea that when we look at someone, as men look at women, and we have a desirous thought that is impure, we're committing adultery, and it says if you commit adultery, you deserve the death penalty. That's a big deal, guys. Guys, that's a big, big deal. And so I'm talking to the young guys, my sons, my ball players, the fathers, the grandfathers, every man in here. This is a real situation that God is dealing with, and we don't hear these sermons about, we don't hear these studies about, well, anger. We don't hear studies about, wow, he didn't keep his oath. We hear studies about the dangers of pornography. We read studies about all of the, the problems that America has, the problems that, that marriages have because of pornography. And a research was done by the Barna Research Group, and it said six, now obviously... 72.6% of statistics are made up on the spot. You get it? Okay. So, I'm just telling you what Barna said. 68% of Christian men view pornography regularly. If it was 8%, that would be too many. If it was 8%. But according to this, if they're, if they're half wrong and it's 34%, that's one in three men... Christian men view pornography regularly. And then it says even 50% of pastors view pornography regularly. And I will be up here and I will tell you right now, I have my struggles in life. Viewing pornography is not one of them. 
I can look you straight in the eye, any single one of you, and that's not something that I struggle with, not even a little bit, okay? I say that, say, I don't want to say, well, maybe our, maybe our preacher does. No, he doesn't. Um, this doesn't mean that this is just an issue for guys to deal with. The number of women who watch pornography has been on the rise for years. Among women under the age of 25, 33% of them view porn regularly. Even among married couples, 55% of men and 33% of women say they search for porn at least once a month. One preacher said this, Many years ago, I was at a Christian youth pastor conference, and a piece of paper was slid under the door of each room. Entire floors had been reserved for pastors during the conference, and these flyers pointed out that the number of pornographic movies watched in hotel rooms skyrocketed during Christian conferences. This tells me that this problem should be something we talk about on a regular basis. More than 55% of divorcees say that pornography played a role in the decision to end their marriage. 55% of divorcees say that pornography played a role in the decision to end their marriage. Ah, it makes me sick. Barner Group and the Covenant Eyes did a study, and these are some of the numbers, that 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites, 42 million porn sites, which total around 370 million pages of porn, The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the U.S. reported that pornography is a problem in their home. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. 56%, this one says 56%, of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the last 12 months. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for porn use. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. And 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. I wonder why Jesus put this pretty close to the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Is this, this idea of lust and which, which leads to adultery. This idea of lust which leads to sexual immorality. This idea of lust which leads to fornication is affecting the church in a massive way. It's affecting our homes. It's affecting the body of Christ. It's affecting eternity for people. This is real. When he says that if you look just lustfully, just lustfully at a woman, you've committed it. It's this concept of this slippery slope as we look at something and our eyes see something and then we don't see our wife the same. We don't see our, our, our sister in Christ the same. <laughs> this is what's damaging the body as much as anything else, I think, for men. 
And I want you to notice something here, because this is what we're going to really focus on, I think, towards the, the, the end of the sermon. It's not close, just don't get your hopes up. But uh, I'm telling you, this is what we're going to focus towards the end here, is that what he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's been sayings that have been out there for a long time. It's okay to look, but you can't touch. It's okay to window shop, but you just can't go in and buy anything. And that's the biggest bunch of nonsense I've ever heard for Christian people to say. It's not okay to look. It's not okay to window shop. This goes against the teachings of Jesus because if you look lustfully, you are committing adultery in your heart. And that is the basis of this whole Sermon on the Mount is that He is dealing and attempting to deal with your heart. He's not dealing with the physical because He knows the physical is a manifestation of what happens here first. He says, it's your heart's the issue, not the physical out. It's the process that begins. And I find it interesting that we think Jesus raised the bar in the New Testament. We think he raised the bar and goes, oh man, are you, you know, as a, as a Jew, the Israelites, I could look at my neighbor's wife and I could, woohoo, I could do that. As long as I didn't go across the threshold, I was fine. And people think that he raised the bar in the New Testament. And I used to kind of firmly believe that too until I, I read the Ten Commandments again. I'm like, wait a second. What is the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That word covet, that word covet means to delight in, to desire, to lust after. That's what that word covet means in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, do not covet her. So Jesus didn't just raise the bar. He had the bar set at the beginning in the Ten Commandments. That it's a heart issue. Don't look across the fence. Don't look anywhere other than your bride and look at her as the one that God has given you. It's the beautiful creation made in His image that He gave you to be your helpmate. And don't spoil that by looking at something that's going to ruin the church. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to ruin your kids. If you think I'm just talking out of my other side, you're wrong. This is what happens. This is what happens in Christianity is it falls and people fall and it's the devil who's out there and he's putting money into it through people and he's trying to destroy the body of Christ. Jesus then says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, this is in the context of looking at a woman lustfully. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's not even saying if you've physically done it, go get surgery. He just says, if you look at a woman and it's causing you to sin, if it's causing you to covet, if it's causing you to lust, I want you to take your right eye, I want you to rip it out of your face, and I want you to throw it away. And then he says, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body 
be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members in your whole body going to hell. This is how serious Jesus is talking about. How serious this is that Jesus is talking about. He said, if it's causing you to sin, I want you to gouge out your own eye. I want you to cut off your own hand. And then in Matthew chapter 18, he talks about if your foot causes you to sin, cut your foot off and throw it away because it's better for you to go through life maimed than to go to hell. You think this is kind of a serious subject here? Men, you think this is a serious subject here? Jesus would rather you pull your own eye out. Do I think it's a hyperbole? Yes. I do not believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll be happy to have the conversation after, but I do not believe that Jesus is saying to self-mutilate. I think he's saying it would be better to self-mutilate than to go to hell. One man said, of course the words of Jesus are not to be taken with crude literalism. What they mean is that anything which helps seduce us to sin is to be ruthlessly rooted out of life. If in life there is an association which can be the cause of sin, if in life there is a pleasure that could turn out to be our ruin, then that thing must be surgically excised from life. So what would be easier? To stop looking at pornography... Stop coveting your neighbor's wife or gouging out your eye. You ever play the game, would you rather? A, a very, a very well-respected brother that I know who knows the word very well. You guys don't know him. About 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, Pretty close. He decided to follow Jesus. He decided to become a Christian. And he became a Christian. And he started to study the Bible, dedicate his life. And this friend of mine had a collection of magazines that he had been really passionate about in his pre-Jesus life. And he would get, you know, copies, and he would look, he'd find old copies, and he had this collection that had a Big monetary value as Playboy. A big monetary value of magazines. And he was struggling with it. He's like, man, I've got, I've got this stuff, and I know it's against my life as a Christian now, and I just, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. And so he, he said, you know, on one hand, I could, I could take them all. I could, I could sell them. I could, make a, I could make a bunch of money. Or on the other hand, I could just take them to the dump. Put them in a box and take them to the dump. I could trash them. Well, he decided that he was going to trash him. He cut out his right eye. He cut out his hand. He cut off his hand. Because it was causing him sin. It was causing him to look lustfully upon something that was affecting his walk with Jesus. He decided that was more valuable to cut that out than to keep it and potentially get condemned to hell. So my question would be, what's going to be your story? 
What's going to be your example? Am I going to be preaching about you without naming names in five years saying, hey, I had a friend who used to be addicted to TikTok or Instagram or internet porn who came to me and said, you know, Nate, I need to, I need to cleanse this from my soul. Are you going to cut it out? Or is it going to be something you just kind of hide? You know, like, you guys can't see me, can you? You think you can hide behind a window, but God sees all. Jesus sees all. He sees it. He knows. He knows it all. He knows what you're doing in darkness and secret. He knows. And he loves us so much that he put this in here saying, you want to... You want to escape the fires of hell? I need your heart. I need your heart. And what's just amazing to me is that we look at this book, we look at this Bible, and it's, you know, B-I-B-L-E, the holy B-I-B-L-E. Now that's the book for me. I lean upon the word of God, B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions before leaving earth. We look at this Sermon on the Mount, and we see Jesus saying, you want to be blessed? Do this. You want to be blessed? Do this. Oh, you want to escape the fires of hell? Then rid yourself of these things. You're angry? Get rid of your anger. Jesus is the way. Be the salt. Be the light. We get this book that He loves us so much. He gave us the words to read and to say, oh my goodness, this is real. I need to remove this from my life because if I don't, I'm going to be in trouble. I don't want to be in trouble. And we see throughout the entire Bible these recommendations from Him. We see these stories from Him where He says, do this, don't do this. And in Hebrews chapter 13, I very rarely go to gotquestions.org. Although I go to it occasionally because I'm like, I wonder what gotquestions.org has to say about this particular subject. So I just Googled something and gotquestions.org came up. And the passage that it comes to when it talks about practical application for the married couples in this room is Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life Free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I look up this word undefiled. And this word undefiled is used four times in the New Testament. And it, it basically is used in the same sense of being unstained, um, unadulterated. It describes un, uh, Jesus as uncontaminated, the perfect high priest. And the marriage bed can be defiled. The marriage bed between husband and wife can be defiled in, in several ways. The first way is uh, fornication, where you have two unmarried people coming together. Like, oh, that's not, 
you, who are you to judge? Look, I'm not judging. I'm just telling you this is what the Bible says about fornication. Like we can, culturally, we can say, oh, it's okay because everybody else is doing it. Well, if everybody, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? No. So just because the world says something is okay doesn't make it okay, young people. Okay? Just because the, or just because the world says, well, you know, just make sure you love them. Well, that's not, the, that's not like the parameter of being a, a follower of Jesus. Like if you love someone, it's okay to fornicate. That's not what it says. It's this idea, this concept that God made male and female, that's my other science fact, honey, male and female, that there's only two. So that she says I've just beaten that dead horse, but I've got to keep telling you because you're hearing it all the time, there's only two, male and female. And there's this, there's this idea in Scripture that he brings the male and female husband and wife together. And, and people in today's day and age are just kind of doing whatever they want. They change it like they do their underwear in Hollywood. And it's not biblical. And that's one way for the marriage bed to be defiled. Another way is adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, and pornography. Guys, I know if this doesn't affect you personally, it affects someone you know. Because it's rampant. When the, when the lust industry, we'll call it the lust industry, makes more than ABC, CBS, and NBC combined, when it makes more than NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball combined, it's an issue. It's an issue with the way people dress. It's an issue when you're driving down the street. It's an issue when you're looking at magazines. And Jesus is saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want you to change the way you look at one of my creations. I don't want you to covet her. I don't want you to covet him. Is that making sense? What I think what Jesus is saying here? Did I hit it on? Did I, did I get close, Steve? And we, we avoid this subject of hell so much. I mean, there's books that are written about it, erasing hell. We've got an eraser. We're going to take it. It doesn't exist anymore. And I just, I don't see an eraser in the scriptures when it comes to the concept of hell. I see, Jesus is saying here, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And 2 Peter says that God's desire is that all men come to repentance everywhere. That's his desire. He doesn't want you to leave him. He doesn't want you to choose to go to another place. He desires for you to have the blessings that come from the promises we find in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I thought about doing another message about this next week because what's physical is spiritual. I could probably wrap this up in about three minutes or I could spend 40 on it next week and get really in-depth. But the nation of Israel is called an adulterous people time and time again throughout the Scriptures. And we could take this physical of a man having a lustful intent towards something else, someone else. You can say the same thing with the church. It's an adulterous generation is that the church body 
And people within the church are looking outside of the church as things that they covet and desire more than Jesus and more than God. I mean, Jeremiah talks about it constantly. It's like, you adulterous people, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. We're called adulterous people. Don't be an adulterous people. Don't be breaking the vow you made to God when you made the vow that says, yes, I'm going to follow you. Don't break that vow and don't desire and covet something else because he is our first love. And we see that in the book of Revelation with the seven churches. You have left your first love. You have lost your first love. You need to get back to your first love. So I know that in the context, he's talking about the physical relationship between man and woman here, but we can also look at the spiritual application of the health of the church too. Okay, thanks for not throwing tomatoes. You probably weren't prepared to throw tomatoes today, and I'm glad. I'd have dodged them anyway. I can make light of it, but I sure hope I sure hope that if this is an area that you struggle with, you do business with it. Brian Vandermark got a diagnosis of cancer and a friend of ours from way back when, her husband got a diagnosis of cancer recently within the last couple of weeks, three weeks or so. And it's almost like you get, a, you get an opportunity to go to God and say, God, I need a I need to clear some things. I know I'm getting close. Right, Bina? You have an opportunity when there's a potential. If God takes me, hey, I'm going to get right here. But oftentimes, your life's taken like that. Did you have a brother-in-law? A couple weeks ago? I don't feel well. For his sake, thank God he was right here. Not everybody gets the opportunity to say, God, I'm, I need to get some things off my chest. So I would encourage you, if there's stuff that's uh, deep down, you need to get rid of, I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't wait. That's just my opinion, though. So, Love you guys. I'm going to preach on a a much simpler uh, subject, divorce, next week. (laughs) So I hope you can make it.